We are up to chapter four, Mishnah number eight. It's a very short Mishnah, but it's authored by one of the most important sages of the Mishnahic era and whose story and whose lessons and teachings are very important, very significant, and ones that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Rabbi Yossi says, Kol HaMechabed Esa Torah, whoever honors the Torah, Gufo Mechubar Alabrios, is himself honored by the people. But Gufo literally means his body, but it means he himself, he is essentially honorable by people. However, Mechol HaMechalel Esa Torah, whoever disgraces the Torah, Gufo Mechul Alabrios, he himself is disgraced by the people. So before we begin to parse out this teaching, let us talk about this very pivotal, very important, very prolific Tana. Tana is the name assigned to the rabbis who are the authors of the Mishnah. And he is one of the most important and significant and prolific Tanaim of the second century of the Common Era. He is a student of the great Rabbi Akiva, and he is one of the teachers of arguably the most important Jew of that era, Rabbi Judah the Prince. Rabbi Judah the Prince, of course, is the Nasi. He is the president of the Jewish people. He is the political leader, the religious leader. And he's, of course, the one who makes the very consequential decision to codify the Oral Torah, to begin to write down the laws of the Oral Torah in an authoritative way. And thus we have the 63 books of the Mishnah, that are going to be written down under his leadership, under his guidance, under the guidance of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Who was Rabbi Judah the Prince's teacher? One of his teachers is the great Rabbi Yosef. So he's kind of that bridge between the generation of Rabbi Tiva and the generation of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Think of it towards the middle to the latter half of the second century of the Common Era. Now, there are literally hundreds of stories and teachings of his in the Talmud and in the Mishnah and in the Midrash. And of course, we're just going to cover a small sample of them to get a flavor of who he was and the times in which he lived. Now, his tenure is going to begin with one of the most treacherous times in Jewish history. Of course, our people are no strangers to harrowing, challenging times to persecution, to dispersal, to marginalization, to torment, to oppression of all types. But maybe one of the most significant examples of that is what we suffered at the hands of the Romans in the middle part or the the beginning to middle part of the second century of the Common Era. Of course, the temples destroyed by the Romans, the year 70, according to Jewish tradition, maybe the year 68, but around that time. And that, of course, began with a war known as the Great Revolt. The Jewish people revolt, the Romans come, and of course the Jews had very good reason to revolt, but the Romans come and they start mopping up town after town, destroying, laying siege, just devastation across all of Judea. And eventually the Troy Temple, and then the finally the last stronghold is, of course, the fortress at Masada that we know well. And from that point forward, the Romans are ruling Judea with an iron fist. And the sages, even though they survive to some degree, many of them do, they have to live underground. The Jewish people are scattered. Many Jews are leaving the land. And things are very tenuous for the next hundred or so years. 
Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to mark this time of harmony between the Jews and the Romans because he's going to be best friends with Antoninus, the emperor, and that's going to give him certain flexibility, certain latitude to make these monumental projects, such as the writing down of the Mishnah, make that feasible. But during that hundred years, it's a very tenuous time. We have, of course, the emperor uh, Nero and, and Trajan, but the worst of them all is the emperor Hadrian. And what Hadrian does to the Jews in Judea, it's horrific. They impose the restrictions on religious life, just like during the times of the Greeks, you know, the Hanukkah story, we read about Antiochus and what he does and the restrictions that he imposes upon the Jewish people. Essentially, Hadrian adopts that playbook. And he says, oh, Torah, can't study Torah, Shabbos, can't observe Shabbos, kosher, all, all these laws that are so fundamental to Jewish life, they're suddenly banned by the new administration. And that, of course, inspires the Bar Kokhba revolt. Bar Kokhba is a very charismatic and brilliant military leader, also a great Torah scholar, also family of some of the, some of the great rabbis of his day. And he starts this revolt. And the revolt is amazingly successful. And they're able to liberate city after city from Roman control. They liberate Jerusalem. According to one opinion, they reinstitute sacrifices in Temple Mount. That's it. We have the Messiah. We have the plan to reconquer the land and to usher in this new messianic era. Things are going to be fantastic, right? Rabbi Kiva, the greatest sage of his era, he signs up. He says, this Bar Kokhba fellow, he's a very good candidate to be the Messiah. But then things get to his head. And he says, you know what? He tells God, the way the Talmud describes it, he tells God, he's like, listen, I don't actually need your help. Just don't help the enemies. I got this from here. I'll take it from here. And he gets haughty and he starts killing rabbis because he gets very, he gets very paranoid that they're, the rabbis are telling the Romans how to get into the city. And anyhow, things really devolve rapidly. And of course, this revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt ends in the stronghold of the city of Betar. Betar was a city. All the Jews are coalesced in this one city. It's got impregnable uh, fortresses, but the Romans find their way to the city and they slaughter just the, the way it's described in both Jewish and Roman sources. We're talking about a million people being slaughtered. Just horrific devastation. And then Hadrian turns his ire and his fury and his anger on the rabbis. And he tries to assassinate as many rabbis as he can. And then he imposes all these restrictions to try to grind religious life to a halt. And this is the time which Rabbi Yossi is beginning his life as, as one of the young rabbis. He's a student of Rabbi Kiva. When Rabbi Kiva's 24,000 students, they die. By the way, some people believe that they die in this context. They die at the hands of Hadrian. But who's left? You know, Rabbi Kiva's 100 plus years old. Rabbi Yochanan Zakra is already passed. That's the, the previous era. And Rabbi Kiva, his students were so promising, 24,000. Think about what that's like. 24,000 great Torah giants. And now it's down to five. Five students left. And all of Jewish continuity rests on the shoulders of these five students. Now, thankfully, these five students are all absolute superstars. One of them is Rabbi Yossi. Others, of course, are like Rabbi Meir. We've heard of him. Uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, amongst others. But one of the things that the Romans forbid is a very critical institution 
of rabbinic life, and that is called smicha. Smicha is the conference of rabbinic ordination from teacher to student, which began when Moses placed his hands upon Joshua and said, I hereby make you a rabbi, so to speak. You are, you are given the authority to rule in matters of Torah. That began, Joshua passes on to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. And this is the concept of smicha. And this can only be done under certain circumstances to certain people, by certain people. But this was critical because the Sanhedrin, which is the, the body of rabbinic leadership, can only be comprised of members that have smicha. And therefore, if you want to continue this institution, that's the bedrock of, of the rabbinic leadership in the land, you have to continue the institution of the smicha. Say the Romans, and this is quoted from the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 13b and 14a. This is the institution that is so critical, and what did the Romans say about it? This is a quote. Once the wicked kingdom made a decree upon the Jewish people that whoever confers smicha will be assassinated, will be killed. And whoever receives smicha will also be killed. And the city in which smicha is conferred, the entire city will be laid waste. And not only that, all the suburbs of that city will be destroyed. So this is, you know, they're, they're laying down the law in a very harsh and brutal way. And they're saying, we are going to end the smicha. And by doing that, you're going to completely stop this institution that has been present amongst the Jewish people all the way since Moses, 1,500 years prior. And there's one old sage that has smicha. He's the last remnant of the previous generation. All the rabbis have been killed. And he said that I'm going to make it my duty to keep this alive. And his name is Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava. So what does he do? He takes the five students of Rabbi Kiva. And again, all of Jewish history relies on this story. And he goes between two mountains and between two major cities and between two metropolitan areas. So basically he's saying no city can be the guilty city in which smicha was done because it's not in any city. It's between two cities. So each one of them could say, well, it wasn't our city. It was that city. And thus the cities would be spared. And he takes his the five students and they are Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yossi, the author of our Mishnah, and Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. And there is one opinion that says there was actually a sixth student, Rabbi Nechemia. These are all students of Rabbi Akiva, and he says, I'm going to give them smicha now. I'm going to do the smicha process here, stealthily, surreptitiously, skulking away from, from the Romans, and we're going to keep this alive. Problem was, is that there were traitors. There were people in the land that were watching out for them, and they knew that there was this plot underfoot. So they quickly called the Romans. Oh no, we found the guilty parties. They're doing the smicha. In a hidden fashion. And right away, they started pouncing upon these six or seven sages. And this old rabbi says to the students, he says, I'm old. I'm not from the next generation. Scatter, run, survive, and don't worry about what happens to me. So the by the time the Romans arrive at this location... 
they just see the old rabbi and the way the Talmud describes what they did to him. They threw 300 spears into him and they made him, they, they peppered him like a sieve. That's what the Talmud says. They killed him in a horrific way as the Romans were wont to do. But anyhow, this story, says the Talmud, if not for this, Jewish history would be very different because we wouldn't have that same authority to write down the Mishnah, to, to kind of push the extinction of the smicha 200 years into the future that gave the time and the ability to set up the Jewish world that it can actually exist, it can continually exist, even once smicha has gone extinct. And again, this is the kind of ordination that Rabbi Yossi got. This is the kind of world that he's living in, where simply receiving the ordination that you deserve from the qualified rabbi who received it from his rabbi, from his rabbi all the way back to Moses, that's not only is that a capital offense, it's a capital offense that in the Romans' eyes warrants entire cities to be massacred. Obviously, it is a very difficult time to to flourish in, but it's also it's one of the remote, most remarkable and heroic times in Jewish history because these students, each one of them said, I'm going to take upon myself codifying entire blocks of oral Torah. So a lot of the fundamental literature that we have from this time comes from these students. They realized we're the only ones that could do it. We're the only ones that could take all the teachings that we got from our teacher, from Rabbi Akiva, and pass it on to the next generation. So for example, Rabbi Judah the Prince, this is already, you know, several decades later, and things have quieted down, and the Roman decrees have ceased, and theme, you know, there's more flexibility, there's more time, there's more breathing room. He says, we're going to start now writing down the Mishnah. So how do you write down the Mishnah? He goes to Rabbi Meir, who was one of his teachers, one of the five students, again, of Rabbi Akiva, who survived, one of the five or six students that received smicha from Rabbi Yudah Bava. He takes his notes. And his notebooks, they're the basis for the Mishnah. And therefore, if you have an unattributed Mishnah, then who's the author? The author is Rabbi Meir, because that's just that's not attributed, because that, that must not come from the original notes of Rabbi Meir, the student of Rabbi Akiva, and the teacher of Rabbi Judah the Prince. But each one of these sages is an author of one of these kind of critical components of Mishnahic era oral law books. And one of them is Rabbi Yossi, the author of our Mishnah. So there's many, many stories about him and there's many descriptions about his character. I want to go through some of that to get more of a flavor of who he was on a personal level. So Talmud tells us that he was a man of superlative integrity and submission to other Torah scholars. He was very humble and he would always try to defer to the other sages of his time. Says the Talmud, Book of Shabbos, page 118b. Rabbi Yossi says, My entire life, I have never once transgressed the words of one of my colleagues. I would always submit myself to them. I I would never push my own ruling and say, oh, I'm right and you're wrong. I would never impose my ruling upon others. And then he says, I know for sure that I am not a Kohen. I know that for sure. But if one of my colleagues, if one of these other rabbis, if they say to me, okay, you're a Kohen and go do the, go do the duchning, go give the blessing of the Kohen, go give the priestly blessing. I would obediently obey. That's how committed I am to not transgressing the words of my colleagues. And then he adds, my entire life, 
I never said something neither positive nor negative about a specific person and then denied it. It wasn't someone that was talking about people behind their back, both good or bad. And then when they say, oh, you said this about me, he was always honest and always had this integrity. Okay, that's one story that we're told about him. He was also someone of superlative modesty. Again, from the same book of Talmud, page Shabbos 118b, Rabbi Yossi says the following statement. My entire life, I never once gazed upon my bris milah, upon my circumcision. Never once looked at it. And the Talmud says, wait a minute, is that so? Can we say that he was so modest he never looked at his own circumcision? Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Can't be. Why? Because his student is Rabbi Judah the Prince. And Rabbi Judah the Prince has three different names in Talmudic and Mishnahic literature. One of them is Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Danasi. One of them is Rebbe, which means simply rabbi, because he is such an important personality. He's the rabbi of the whole Jewish people. He's just called simply rabbi without being told Rabbi Judah. He's just called rabbi. But he's a third name. The third name of Rabbi Judah the Prince is Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy master. Why was he given that particular honorific of being called our holy master? Says the Talmud. It's because he himself testified upon himself that he never looked, he never gazed upon his own circumcision. So if so, if when someone never looks at their own circumcision, they're called our holy master, how come Rabbi Yossi, if he says that he never looked at his circumcision, he should also be called their holy master? Says the Talmud, no. Rabbi Judah the Prince was even holier. Because not only did he not look at his own circumcision, he never stuck his hands beneath his belt. He always had his hands up. And that's even super duper uber modesty. And therefore he's told, he's told the, our holy teacher. Whereas Rabbi Yossi, he was holy, he was modest, but not quite on that same level. Now he was someone who five of his Sons all became Titanic Torah scholars. In fact, the author of the next Mishnah is Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi. It shows that not only was he personally just a great sage, he actually was the father of a dynasty of five great sages. Now, he was an expert on matters of Torah chronology and of Jewish and rabbinic history. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, each one of these five sages wrote an authoritative book from that era, from the Mishnahic era. He wrote the book called Seder Olam, which means the order of the world, which deals with chronology. What happened and when happened, kind of the big picture of the timeline, so to speak, of all of human and all of Jewish history. And in fact, throughout the Talmud, we see that he is going back to times of yore to yesteryear, and telling you exactly how things were. Just several examples. In the Mishnah, in Rosh Hashanah, again, think about where he's, where, like, where is he operating? He's operating now in the second century of the Common Era. So his heyday, think of it as maybe the year 150 or so, or 160, it's almost 100 years after the temple's destroyed. And the Mishnah is dealing with the question, who is qualified to be a witness to testify for a new moon. And even though that happened later, there's a description about what happened on the temple grounds. When the Sanhedrin was in the temple grounds, there were people that used to come and they weren't sure if they were they were good or not. You have a father and a son. Are they good witnesses? Typically, 
to have a unit of testimony, the two witnesses can't be related. Well, can a father and a son come and serve testimony to be witnesses together in a question of just the new moon? It's not like really a criminal, it's not a civil question. It's more like a religious question. Would they be qualified? And the Talmud uh, talks about a fellow by the name of Tuvia, the doctor. He was a physician. And he saw the new moon. And who did he see the new moon with? His son and his freed slave. He had a slave. He was freed. What happens when a slave is freed? They become Jewish. So three people saw the new moon, two of you the doctor, his son, and his freed slave. So which one of these three make a unit of testimony? So they go to the temple, and they arrive at the the kind of the, um, I would say, the, the at the entrance of the temple, there were a bunch of, of priests of Quranim that were vetting. And the priests, they said, you know what? This freed slave, we're not going to listen to him. He's Jewish, yeah, but we're not going to listen to him. We're going to take you and your son. That is a unit of testimony. And then they arrived at the Sanhedrin, at the actual great authorities and the experts, at the Kanyashenti of Halacha. And they said, no, you and your son, Tuvia the doctor, disqualified because you are relatives. However, you're freed slave. He's a Jew after all, and therefore he is qualified. You and your freed slave, there you're going to provide the testimony for the new moon. Who told us that story? This is Rabbi Yossi. He was like a chronicler. Even though he lived 100 years, at least at a minimum, after this story happened, he was someone's real expert to know the tradition and the heritage and the stories. He was the historian, the, the, the chronicler, the chronologer of the past. A similar example from the Mishnah in Yoma. When it talks about the scapegoat. So on Yom Kippur, in the temple, they take two identical goats and they make a lottery and they see which one of them is going to be offered as a sacrifice to God and which one of them is going to be the scapegoat to be chucked off the cliff several miles away from Jerusalem. So the question is posed in the Mishnah Yoma, well, who is the one who takes the goat and walks it to its to the cliff and chucks it off the cliff? Does it have to be a Kohen? Or can it be anyone? And again, more than a hundred years or a hundred years or so after this process no longer happened amongst the Jewish people, comes along Rabbi Yossi. And he says, there was a story. I know of a story. A fellow by the name of Arsala. He was the scapegoat walker and he was an Israelite. Again, he was someone that had comprehensive knowledge of the past and thus he would employ that on a halachic questions that uh, that were relevant to episodes of the past. Now, he was also a renowned polemicist. He was uh, very gifted in matters of scripture, and he would explain scripture, and he would be the one or one of the people that would debate with the Romans. You know, the Romans are very sophisticated people, despite being a very barbaric people. And every generation, there's always one or two sages that are the best representatives, so to speak, of Jewish people, to be able to be, you know, adroitly navigating the very dangerous waters of theological and scriptural debate with the Romans. So the previous generation was Rabbi Yehoshua. We spoke about him in the past, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania. He was a diplomat and he was a debater. And whenever the Romans would want to find out what the Jews are doing or start asking them questions about scripture – they would bring in Rabbi, Rabbi Yehoshua and he would have to defend, so to speak, Torah and defend Jewish tradition in uh, the very hostile halls of Rome. In this generation, 
several generations later, Rabbi Yossi is the one who is the polemicist. He's the one that represents the Jewish people in the debate. So there's many, many examples of debates that he has with Romans, especially Roman noble women, for whatever, for whatever reason, they would always like to pepper him with questions. And there are a series of debates that are recorded in the Midrash, and we'll share a few of these interesting debates that this matronisa, this Roman matron, had with the great Rabbi Yossi. So the first one is, she asks him, why, if you look at the description of Genesis, why does it not mention, behold, it was good on day two? In day two of creation, it doesn't say that description that is found in all the other days. Day one, God made whatever he made on day one, and it was good. Day three, day four, day five, day six, it was all good. Day two, it's noticeably, conspicuously absent. Why was the description, it was good, omitted on day two? He said to her, well, look at what happened at the end. At the very, very end of all of creation, it says, God looked at all that he did, which includes everything from the previous six days, and behold, it was exceedingly good. And therefore, don't think that what happened on day two was bad. No, it was very good. Because after all, at the end, it looks at everything that happened, and it says quite clearly that everything was very good. But then she says, she persists, she says, wait a minute, but that's not fair. And she gives an analogy. Suppose you have six people that come to visit you, and each one of them gets, you know, one gift with the exception of one person. So you have five gifts and one person you don't give a gift. And then you give a second gift to everyone. So one guy has one gift and everyone else has two gifts. It's not fair. So you don't resolve the, the dilemma. So he responds to her, well, look what was created on day two. Day two is the creation of the water. And all the creation of the water was not finalized until day three. And therefore, it does not, does not say it was good on something that was partially completed. It has to be fully completed for the description of it was good to be applied onto it. She gives another question. You know, why did God steal Adam's rib to make Eve out of? It's a good question. And he says, well, didn't steal it. He upgraded it. You had a rib. Now you have one fewer rib, but you have an amazing wife. It's like, it's like I stole your silver chalice and I replaced it with a gold chalice. It's not, God didn't steal it. And then she asks, well, still, still not uh, resolved because after all, why is God doing it stealthily? Why is God putting Adam to sleep and then taking out his rib? Do if, if you're upgrading, if you're taking away the silver chalice and replacing it with the gold chalice, do it in front of all. Do it when Adam's watching. So he responds, well, if he would do that, what would Adam see? Adam would see him a very gory surgery. Lots of blood and lots of tendons and muscle, and that would make his subsequent wife less appealing. And she responds, you know what? You're right. Because I grew up in the palace, and there was an uncle of mine, and he was designated to marry me. But because he grew up with me and he saw me as a little kid and he saw me in, in, in less flattering ways, he decided to marry someone else who's much uglier than I am. And therefore, I see you're right. When someone sees someone, when someone witnesses someone in less flattering ways, they don't like them as much. And therefore, it makes sense that God 
did not want Adam to see Eve in a less flattering way, and therefore he put him to sleep. This one's clever. It's not clear if it's the same Roman uh, matron. Likely it is, but who knows. So she says to him, our God, the Romans had lots of gods, 30,000 according to the Roman historian Deo Cassius. One of the Roman gods was the snake. And what is what happens when Moses sees a snake? He takes his staff, he throws it into the ground, and he turns into a snake. What does Moses do? He runs away. Moses is terrified of my God. Whereas when he sees your God by the Rome, by the burning bush, he just covers his eyes. He doesn't run away. Obviously, my God's more powerful than your God. Because when Moses sees my God, the snake, he runs away. And when he sees your God, he just covers his eyes. He doesn't run away. Aha, very clever, right? Checkmate. Oh, no. So he responds to her very cleverly. When Moses encounters our God at the burning bush, where is he going to run away to? He can't run away to anywhere. There's no place that is free of divine dominion. You're going to run to the skies, to the sea, to the land. God's in control of them all. There's no place that you can escape. There's no place to hide from God. But you're God, the pathetic snake. All you got to do is you have to sidestep it. You sidestep it. You run two or three feet away from it. And you are no longer under its dominion. And uh, with that clever rejoinder, he silenced her. One more quick story. This is my favorite one of them all. This matron, this is found several places in in the Midrash. This matron, she tells him, well, how long did it take God to create the world? So he says, well, six plus one, you read Genesis. Okay, so then she asks, okay, so what is God doing since then? Been a long time. What's he might doing since then? So he responds, he is mezaved zivudim. He's making matches. He's deciding who's going to marry who. And he's putting them together. He's orchestrating. He's the matchmaker that's orchestrating all the behind the scenes to make sure the people that are destined to marry each other, they meet. And this person is supposed to marry this person, and I'll make sure their paths cross, and therefore they'll meet. That's what the man is doing since then. That's what he responds. So this Roman matron says, you don't need God for that. I could do that. And she says, okay, I have a thousand male servants. And I have a thousand female servants. I'm going to play God. So she makes a, a long line, a thousand male servants, and a long line of a thousand female servants. It says, okay, I am now the matchmaker. And she says, you with you, you with you, you with you. She goes up and down the lines, and she hooks them all up. A thousand matches. I can do what God can do. Okay. The next day, she wakes up to find the carnage. What does she discover? So the matrix is very particular in what she, what she discovers. One of them, they got into a fight. And they started throwing furniture at each other. And one of them had a wound in their head. And one of them, the fight really got it more intense. And they started scraping at each other. And one of them lost an eyeball. Their eyeball was gouged out. These Roman maidservants would be tough. They got into a fight. And a third one of them, the magician scribes, had a broken leg. Again, they must have chucked something out them. Broken leg. And they come back the next day and they tell this Roman uh, noblewoman, I don't want to marry, be married to him. I don't want to be married to him. Everyone's upset with the, with the union that they were given. So she returns to Rabbi Yossi and she says to him, you're right. Your Torah is greater than our Torah. Your God is unlike any other God. Now it made sense to me. I cannot play God. God is the matchmaker and not me.
I want to share a parenthetical story. When my sister, my sister was about to get married, so the week of the wedding, it's it's sandwiched by the two Shabbases of the the previous previous Shabbos beforehand, and the Shabbos afterwards, and both of those are Shabbases of celebration. One of them, it's the the the, the bride and the groom are still separate. And the bride has her celebration, and the groom has his celebration, and then the Shabbos after the wedding, you have the celebration together, the Shabbos brachas, it's called the Shabbos Shabbos brachas, where both of them celebrate together with both families. So anyhow, my sister was getting married, and the Shabbos before the wedding, we, our family, went to the groom's family to celebrate with the groom together, which is commonly done. But again, the, my sister, the bride, she's not present. She's not, she's not in the room. She's in, in our neighborhood. She's in a different city. And we're together with the groom and there's a whole Shabbos of festivities of celebration. So they asked me to speak. So this is what I said. I told over the story and I asked the question, you know, the, the insight makes sense. The great rabbi says, what's God doing? God's making matches. And of course, the almighty, he knows how to make matches. And the Roman noblewoman, she says, well, I can do the same thing too. And it's a unmitigated disaster. But the Midrash gives us a lot of gory details. One of them had a smashed in head, and one of them had a broken leg, and one of them was missing an eyeball. It gives us very gory details. Why does the Midrash need to give us gory details? Why couldn't it just say it didn't work out? And they said, you know what? Give me a different one. That would have conveyed the message accurately, that the Almighty is the one who makes the connections, who makes the unions, who makes the matches. Why is it unnecessarily graphic? So I said like this. I said that, you know, when people get married, there is an acclimation period. Their rosy fantasies of what things are going to be like eventually encounter reality. Then I quoted one of the great rabbis of today's generation. He said, almost every young husband within the first six months or so of their marriage is convinced that they married the wrong person. It's convinced. Why? Because, you know, when they were dating, she was on her best behavior. And then he discovers that maybe she's not as perfect as he thought she was. And he's like, oh my goodness, I made a mistake. Am I going to get divorced? What am I going to do with this? It's a problem. And that's common. Because there's the acclimation period and hopefully things will work out. And most people, even when they do marry the right one, so to speak, that's for, that's right for them, that's appropriate for them, things will work out and they'll, they'll grow into it, they'll acclimate. It's a difficult period, but they'll acclimate uh, into each other. Look at this midrash. This midrash is telling us when, when, it's, when you actually marry the wrong one, when God is not the one orchestrating the match, what happens? The very next day, it's so terrible that there's palpable injuries present because of the fighting that happened. One of them has a mashed in skull. One of them is missing a leg. One of them is missing an eyeball. It's telling you that if it's really not the right one, then you know right away because there's violence right away. But if it is the right one, if the, then the Almighty did orchestrate it, it's difficult. But that's okay because you'll, you'll grow from the experience. You'll become even closer as a result of this effort that you'll invest in acclimating towards each other. Then I pointed to the groom. I said, okay, I, w- I want everyone to look at him. I told, I told him, stand up, stand up. Okay, walk around a little bit. I'm going to ask, okay, does he have a limp? Is there anything mi- wrong with his gait? Is he in perfect 
working order? Is he favoring one side? Does he have all his limbs with him? Yes, he does. Okay. Next week when we're together for the Shabbos, we're going to investigate him again. We're going to examine him again. If he if he's still in full working order, we know that for sure he married the right one. We know. It's going to be difficult. Yes. Okay. It's going to be difficult. But we know for sure from this Midrash that if you marry the wrong one, if the Almighty is not the one orchestrating your wedding, then things are right away going to present themselves in the form of uh, very, uh, like we said, graphic details. It's it's going to be clear from the very onset. That was my speech. And we did look at him the following week and he was fine. So that's some of the stories of Rabbi Yossi in his debates with the Romans. Now, he used to have a frequent visitor, Elijah. As we know, Elijah the prophet is someone that ascends to heaven in a chariot. He's someone that doesn't really die. And therefore, he is still going to come to visit the great righteous Tzadikim, of future genera- generations. So this is, we're talking about hundreds of years after Elijah has passed. And the Talmud tells us in several stories how Elijah would come visit Rabbi Yossi. So for example, it tells us Elijah comes and reveals to, to Rabbi Yossi the meaning behind several verses. There's another very long story in the book of Brachos that talks about Rabbi Yossi who was traveling and he had to pray. So he went into one of the ruins of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a destroyed city. So there's one building that's like a ruin. It's a, it's a vacated, it's an empty building. It's a, it's a, it's a ruin. So it's a pile of rubble. He walks into that building and he prays. And when he finishes praying, he goes outside and he sees that someone's watching him, making sure that everything's okay. Who's that? That's Elijah. And of course, they greet each other. And Elijah asks them, why, why did you enter this ruin? So he responds to pray. He says, you should have prayed while, while you're traveling. You shouldn't have stopped and gone into this ruin. You should have prayed while you were traveling. And then he says, well, I, I was worried that if I was traveling, people stopped me asking questions and they would interrupt my prayer. He says, okay, you should have prayed a shorter prayer. And the Talmud goes on to say that he learned all kinds of lessons from Elijah in this story and they discussed the sad, sorrow state of the Jewish people that the Almighty, so to speak, is mourning over the structure of the temple and the Jewish people are mourning as well. One amusing story about his relationship with Elijah is told in the book of Sanhedrin, page 113a to b. Rabbi Yossi was giving a lecture and the subject matter of the lecture was Elijah. And he said to his students... Elijah, he could be a bit strict. He could be a bit unforgiving. And it used to be, says the Talmud, that, that Elijah would come visit him every day. And Elijah stopped visiting him. And three days later, finally, Elijah comes. And he asks Elijah, well, why didn't you come yesterday, day before, day before that? Well, why have you not been here for three days? He says, well, you called me strict. He says, aha, is there any greater evidence that you're strict? The fact that I call you strict and then indeed you punish me right away? You are strict. That's a funny story that is told about his relationship with Elijah. His Allahic opinions were revered by his students, by his contemporaries. The Talmud tells us that he was the sharpest of the sages. The Talmud also tells us that the law is invariably like him. If you have a disagreement with sages, 
whenever Rabbi Yossi's opinion is mentioned, the law is going to follow him. So for example, there was a debate posed in front of Rabbi Judah the Prince, again, a student of his. Is it permitted to insulate cold food on Shabbos to keep it cold? Suppose you have like an ices and you bring it outside, it's going to melt very quickly. But if you wrap it up, you might insulate it and thus you'll preserve the coldness. So Rabbi Judah the Prince is given a lecture and he, he, he believes the halachic ruling is that it's prohibited. Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, the son of the author of our Mishnah, the author of the upcoming Mishnah, he was a student, a participant of this lecture, and he says to him, but wait a minute, I remember my father ruling that this was permitted. You were permitted to insulate cold food to make sure it doesn't melt. So Rabbi Judah responded, if so, if your father permitted it, it was already permitted by the elders by the sages, and therefore it is okay. And Rabbi Judah the Prince continued, us, poor in wisdom, should never argue on the words of Rabbi Yossi. Just as there is a difference between the holy of holies, the most sacred, sacrosanct place in the world, and the most mundane, so too is the difference between our generation and the generation of Rabbi Yossi. His son, Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, used to say, this is quoted in the Talmud, just as there is a difference between gold and dust, so too is the difference between Rabbi Yossi and us. He was just at such a different level. They were very reticent to argue with Rabbi Yossi. I want to share a few more stories. This one is such a wild one. I cannot possibly think of omitting it. This is brought down in the Talmud in Yavamos, page 105. Again, this is after Rabbi has passed, and this is taking place in the lecture hall of Rabbi Judah the Prince. In the lecture hall of Rabbi Judah the Prince, the following story happened. Before the lecture began, there was a debate amongst certain sages. A few of the sages, Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Shimon, they're sitting and they're, they're tumulting, they're discussing a various halachic matter. One of them says, when you pray, your eyes are supposed to be humbly facing down. And he quotes a verse to demonstrate that when you pray, your eyes are supposed to be down. And the explanation of that is he's supposed to face earth. He's supposed to face Israel. He's supposed to face the land. You're not supposed to face the heavens. That's one opinion. The second opinion is that no, you're supposed to put your eyes up to heaven when you pray. So that's the debate that's, that's taking place between two sages before the lecture is supposed to begin. Meanwhile, a third person joins the discussion. Who is that? Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, the author of the next Mishnah, the son of the author of our Mishnah. And he sees these two sages arguing about a halachic matter. So he says, I want to hear what they're talking about. And he asks them, well, what are you discussing? Which halachic matter are you discussing? They say prayer. Where are you supposed to look? You're supposed to look up, You're supposed to look down. So he responds to them, so I heard from my father. When you pray, you're supposed to put your eyes down, but your heart up. And therefore, you have a verse that says, look down. You have a verse that says, look up. They're both true. They're both true. They can be reconciled because you're supposed to put your eyes, physical eyes down, but your heart should be up in heaven. Meanwhile, as they're having this discussion, the lecture begins. Rabbi Drew, the prince is sitting there by his seat. And these three sages that were discussing other matters, 
they're trying to hustle to their spots, to their seats. Problem is, is that the sages are sitting on the floor, and Rabbi Judah the Prince is sitting on his on his chair, and everyone's already sitting down in their assigned seat, and these three sages that were towering a bit behind, they're coming late, and they have to climb over the other people to get to their spot. And the two sages, they were lithe, they were a little bit light-stepped, and then right away sat down in their seat. But Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, he was someone that was a little bit heavy. He was a little bit uh, large. And he was walking slowly to try to get to his assigned seat. And therefore, if you look at it, you see all the sages sitting down, and the great prince of Israel, or the prince is sitting on, by his seat, and this lumbering rabbi, Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, is trying to get to his spot, but it looks like he's stepping on people because he's walking between people to get to his location. Meanwhile, there's another person involved in the story whose name is Avdan. Now, Avdan, he wasn't one of the great sages, but he was the amplifier. You know, today, if you go to a sage who's giving a lecture with you know a thousand people in the room, they're going to have to have a microphone because he can't speak that loudly. Well, in antiquity, there was no microphones. So what they used to do is they would employ criers. These are people who would amplify the message. So you have the rabbi, the sage, given the lecture. And he has someone next to him who's going to amplify the message to all the attendees. He's like the attendant of the uh, of the sage. He's going to scream out the messages. So he sees what's happening. He sees Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, walking over people. And he says to him, who are you? You're going to step on the on the heads of the holy nation? Are you worthy of it? Who are you even? Again, everyone's here. Everyone's listening. Everyone's participating. Can you imagine how embarrassing this is? Or Jew the prince, most significant Jew of his era, one of the most significant Jews of all time. Hundreds, if not thousands of sages are there. And this Avdan character is berating Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, saying, who are you even? So he responds, who am I? I am Ishmael the son of Rabbi Yossi. And I came to study Torah from the great Rabbi Judah the Prince. So Avdan persists. He continues. Are you worthy to study Torah from Rabbi Judah the Prince? He's like defending the honor of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Who are you? Are you worthy to study Torah from the great Rabbi Judah the Prince? So he responds, clever rejoinder. Was Moses worthy to study from God? Maybe I'm not worthy. But we see a, pre- a precedent. Moses, an earth, a regular earthling, a human, flesh and blood. Could he, is he worthy to study from God? Maybe not, but he did anyhow. If Moses can study from God, I can study from Rabbi the Prince. So Avdan continues, are you Moses? So Rabbi Ishmael says, is your, is your teacher, is your master, is he God? And the Talmud inserts parenthetically that Rabbi Judah the Prince because he was quiet, because he didn't stop this from happening, he was punished. When Rabbi Ishmael says to Avdan, to the amplifier, when he says to him, is your teacher God? He doesn't say our teacher. And that's the punishment. That's the retribution that Rabbi Judah Prince gets for not defending Rabbi Ishmael. Meanwhile, there was a halachic matter that needed to be resolved. Someone came in, and it's a very complicated question. There was a question, do we need to ascertain adulthood in a given halachic matter for chalitza? And Rabbi Judah the Prince ruled that 
a person needs to be vetted if they are an adult. So he tells he tells Avdan, okay, take this person to go be to go be inspected. Avdan again is the attendant, he's going to be inspected. Meanwhile, after Avdan leaves, Rabbi Ishmael pipes up again and he says, Wait a minute! I have a tradition from my father that this person does not need to be vetted if they're an adult. Doesn't matter. And Rabbi Drew the Prince hears this, and again, he is totally going to subject himself to the ruling of Rabbi Yossi. And he says, stop, Avdan, come back. The elder, Rabbi Yossi, already ruled. There is no need for you to do your mission. So what happens? He starts walking back to the seat next to the Rabbi Drew the Prince. And what is he doing? He too is climbing over people and he's going to go sit down by his spot next to Rabbi Drew the Prince. So what happens? Rabbi Yossi says, wait a minute. Why are you climbing on the heads of the holy nation? He says the exact same words that Avdan said to him. They came right back in his face. He says, why are you climbing over people? Maybe when Rabbi Drew the Prince sent you on the mission, you needed to go. But now that you don't need to go on the mission, maybe you shouldn't stay there. And the Talmud concludes that as a result of this story, Avdan, this person again, who was embarrassed in the great rabbi, Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, he received leprosy. He got this ailment. Two of his sons died and were, were drowned. And two of his daughters-in-law abandoned their husbands. Again, he was punished very severely for starting up with Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, and uh, embarrassing him publicly. Now, again, at this time, in this era, it's a very fraught time for the rabbis, and Rabbi Yossi was no exception. He was marginalized for not kowtowing to the Romans. The Talmud tells the book of Shabbos, page 33b, there were three rabbis that were having a discussion. Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon. And they were discussing the Romans. Are the Romans good people or are they bad people? So Rabbi Judah says, well, look what they did. They established marketplaces. They built bridges. They instituted bathhouses. They really built up the infrastructure of the land of Judea. He gives them praise. Rabbi Yossi hears this, and he's silent. He doesn't say not praise to the Romans, and does not give any criticism to the Romans either. Comes along Rabbi Shimon, and he says, no, 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 you cannot praise these barbarians. When they did it, when they instituted all this, when they built all this infrastructure, it was all for their own benefit. When they built marketplaces, it's because they wanted to have brothels. When they built bathhouses, that's because they wanted to have pleasure. And when they built bridges, it was only because they wanted to collect tolls. There's no altruism here. They didn't do anything for us. It's all selfish. Anyhow, this conversation, it arrived to the ears of the Romans. And the Romans responded as follows. Three sages. One of them praised the Romans. He is going to be promoted. I'm going to make him the speaker of the of the sages. He's going to be the one who's in charge of all the sages. And the one who spoke negatively about the Romans, Rabbi Shimon, 
he's going to be killed. So they ruled that he's going to be killed. And of course, that's when he goes to hide in the cave. We've heard the story. He spends 13 years in the cave hiding from the Romans because the Romans have a ruling against him that he is supposed to be killed. And the third sage, Rabbi Yossi, who was parav, who said he was neutral, he said neither good nor bad about the Romans, he is going to be exiled. And therefore we see throughout his life that he is going to be in various different places. He's going to be in Sipori. He's going to be in Asia. Is Asia Asia? Is there someplace in Europe? That's a discussion. He's going to be in Usha. He's going to be elsewhere in Yavne. He's going to be someone who's going to be an itinerant sage. Again, that is a reflection of the times in which they lived and the fact that they were subject to their Roman overlords. I have to give you one more story. Because it's so, it's such a amusing episode. I have to have to share it. The Talmud says it's talking about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. People of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are of course the most devilish people in in history. They're all deceiving, conniving. They're thieves. But of course, it's described in the Torah though what they used to do. But the sages would, of course, they would discuss every matter of the Torah. So once Rabbi Yossi was giving a lecture about the thievery, about the deceptive methods of the crooks, the criminals of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the subject of the lecture. He would explain exactly what they used to do. So what happened that night? Says the Talmud, that night there were 300 criminals that copied the tactics of Sodom and Gomorrah in the city in which he gave the lecture. He gives a lecture, a Torah lecture, and they say we're gonna, we're gonna use this information to try to implement it and to, and to steal. And all the people came to Rabbi Yossi and say, you can't speak about these things in your lectures anymore because not everyone that comes is, uh, free of any criminal inclinations. Anyhow, he was someone who, as a result of his life and the, the, the world in which he lived, despite being very, very prolific, it's interesting, he didn't have many, many students that would trans- transmit his teachings. And in all likelihood, that's a result of him being marginalized in his peak of his powers. The Romans sent him to a place where there's no other students, and therefore much of what he could have transmitted to other students uh, was, was not enabled uh, as a result of those conditions. Anyhow, he is the author of our Mishnah, and he's teaching us that if you honor the Torah, you yourself are honored, whereas if you desecrate the Torah, you are disgraced. So what does this mean? What does it mean to honor the Torah and, as a result of that, to be honorable yourself? So the simple interpretation given by most of the commentaries is that Torah is special. Torah is divine. Torah is from God. And therefore, everything that's related to Torah has to be accorded with the requisite respect and honor due to something of that stature. So, for example, one of the commentaries says that if you have books of Torah, don't put them on the floor, don't put them on the seat, don't put them on the desk, treat them with reverence, treat them with honor. One of the commentaries actually breaks it down into three separate categories. You have to honor Torah, you have to honor the Torah's sages, which are the stewards of Torah. And you have to honor Torah books. What does that mean? Torah, how do you honor Torah? You study it. You ascribe 
value to it. You don't study it in foul places. We're not, we don't go to the bathroom and read Torah books. It's not an appropriate place to read Torah. You make sure that you're clean. Your hands are clean. Your clothes are clean. You, you treat it with honor that is due to Torah. Moreover, you have to honor the sages. If someone is a Torah sage, a true Torah scholar, well, they themselves are an embodiment of Torah. And if you honor Torah, you have to honor them as well. And finally, you have to honor the Torah literature, the Torah books, if you're going to put them in your house. You know, put them in the most prominent place, give them the, the nicest coverings, carry them with dignity, only touch them with clean hands. You have to treat them with, with reverence and respect that is due to them. You know, today, you can go on eBay and buy baseball cards, and they all have ratings, you know. Uh, is the corner, is it really sharp? It's a 9.5 or mint condition, super mint condition. They put them in these bulletproof boxes to protect the baseball cards. It's amazing what they do for pictures of people playing children games. You know, we have Torah. We should treat the butcher with honor. You should hold them with dignity. Make sure that you don't just drop them on the floor. Make sure you don't, you don't put them upside down. Treat them nicely. They should be beautiful. They are, after all, books of Torah. And if you do that, you yourself are honorable. Moreover, if you desecrate the Torah, God forbid, then you yourself are exhibiting dishonor and you yourself are worthy of disgrace. What does it mean to desecrate the Torah? So obviously it would mean the opposite of everything that we mentioned in, in honoring the Torah. But Rabbi Yonah adds a very interesting insight. He says, another component of desecrating the Torah is to question its salience. When someone says, hey, this verse is important. It's the Ten Commandments after all. This verse that talks about the children of of Ham, of Ham the son of Noah, it doesn't really matter. Why is that important? That's more like a throwaway verse. To do that is sacrilegious because you're saying that some of the Torah is divine and matters, whereas some of it is less salient. In addition, Rabbi Yonah adds a very deep point. What does Rabbi Yossi say? He says, whoever honors the Torah is themselves honorable. Whoever disgraces the Torah is themselves disgraced. You could tell how honorable a person is by studying what they themselves hold in high regard. And he says, this is something which is true and there's evidence on the Torah and it's just a psychological way to actually evaluate a person. If you see that a person holds in high regard the people of value, the people of honor, the people of distinction, the people that are righteous, if that's who they venerate, they themselves are an honorable person. Whereas if they view the people that are not righteous, the people that are not honorable, the people that are not really admirable, then you know themselves, they, they themselves are not admirable people. And therefore, what does it say here? If all you know is someone honors the Torah, you already know that they're an honorable person. And if they disgrace the Torah, you already know that they're a disgraceful person. Because the Torah, of course, it's the most honorable thing that exists in our world. It's the Almighty's wisdom. And if someone honors that, that is a testament, that's evidence to the fact that they themselves are good and righteous. I want to conclude with another interesting teaching that I saw 
a comment on this Mishnah. If you read the words in Hebrew, it says, whoever honors the Torah, their body is honorable. So it stresses the fact that their body is honorable. So one of the commentaries says something very fascinating. We believe that the Torah has the equivalent of a body and a soul. If I see someone, I see their body. The exterior, the veneer, the facade is always the body. What is hidden, what's beneath the surface is the soul. When we encounter Torah, it too has a body and a soul. I could read about animals trying to kill each other, right? Or a person, you know, animal gores another animal. That's in the Torah. And that we would say that's, that's kind of a mundane law. But if I understand Torah properly, I recognize that just as a person has a body and a soul, person's just not just, you know, this uh, biological robot. There's something special about something unique about every person. The Torah is like that as well. And that's the idea of what we call Kabbalah. Kabbalah is, is the hidden parts of the Torah. The soul of the Torah, that is also part of the equation. What does it mean to honor the Torah? It means to recognize that the Torah is more than just its body. There is the soul, and in the soul is where all the hidden stuff are, and that too is part of the package. If I honor Torah, I recognize that it has a body and a soul. Whereas if I destroy the Torah, then I say that the only interpretation of the Torah is the skin surface level. It's the shallow interpretation. It's the body of the Torah. That is what it means to destroy the Torah. And therefore what it says over here is, if you destroy the Torah, your body, so to speak, measure for measure, is disgraced. And it's hinting at the fact that there's a body and soul of Torah by saying this word, your body is honorable if you honor the Torah, and your body is disgraced if you disgrace the Torah. I want to just give an example of this. This passage of Parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim, it talks about the laws of the Torah. And it quotes a verse, Kiseitzei eish umatzar kotzim. If you have a fire that leaves and discovers thorns or a haystack or a bundle of wheat or a bundle of, of grain. And it says, what's the law? The law is if I, if I have my fire go out, I have to pay. That's the, that's the, that's the body. That's, the, that's the, the basic interpretation of this verse. What does the Kabbalah say? How does the Kabbalah, how does the soul of the Torah be manifested in this verse, says the Zohar, says the Kabbalah. A fire goes out. That's a reference to the fire of Messiah. And it's going to consume the thorns. That's a reference to Rome. And it's going to destroy the Gaddish, the haystack. That's a reference to Ishmael and all that Ishmael represents. And it's going to destroy the bundle. That's a reference to Esav, the brother of Jacob, and what he represents. And by the way, it adds, Joseph has a dream, and he sees the bundles. And the bundles are bowing down to him. Joseph, he is the one that defeats Asaph. He is that spark, that fire that consumes the bundle. That's a representation of Asaph. Again, we have a verse. You read it simply. It's describing someone has a fire that goes out and burns some stuff, some some property of his neighbor. And then you dig in a little deeper. You find that there's a soul to this Torah as well with all kinds of deep and hidden messages. And one of the messages of this Mishnah 
And one of the messages of the story of Rabbi Yossi is the absolute depth and profundity found in all of Torah. We have this very fascinating, very pivotal, very consequential sage of the Mishnahic era, Yossi, lives at a very difficult time in Jewish history, is one of the great heroes of his era, one of the great transformative sages who was, who was able to take the Torah of the previous generations and transmit them to the next generations and teach us this very valuable lesson. Whoever honors the Torah, they themselves are honorable, whereas whoever disgraces the Torah, they themselves are disgraced. The next Mishnah is going to be the teaching of his son, Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi. I look forward to studying it with you all together in good health and good spirits. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, this was an absolute joy and a pleasure.